0: Hello, Seattle and Pacific Northwest. Welcome to the third episode of the Startup Seattle podcast. In Startup Seattle, we feature leading members of the Pacific Northwest startup ecosystem. We seek to have engaging conversations with founders, investors, counsel, and other key players in this community. Hope you find us interesting and keep coming back to support us. On deck today is Carter Mackley. I've had many interactions with Carter in a few startup companies. Every time I talk to him, I always learn something new. Carter is an experienced securities lawyer who now focuses on startup companies. In 2010, Carter left big law, jumped into the low overhead virtual firm style of practice. He formed Macley and Macley with his wife Jennifer. They provide experienced, cost-effective counsel to startup companies of all types, assisting entrepreneurs with entity formation, founder and employee equity compensation, Fundraising, general outside council matters, and exit transaction. On that introduction, welcome Carter. Delighted to have you on. How are you? And where does this podcast find you today? Well, thank you,
1: Krishna. Krishna, it's uh, very. uh, It's true. Uh, It's accurate. I can attest that you and I have had some interesting uh, interactions with some interesting companies, uh, startup companies, and. It's also true that in uh, 2010, I uh, left the practice of you know securities law with a larger law firm uh, and set out on my own with my wife and focused just on startup companies. Even uh, my career before that was quite circuitous. I, I started off on Wall Street with uh, Sullivan and Cromwell. They were about as white shoe as you can get. Then there was a 10-year, I did that for three years, and there was a 10-year interim where I was uh, a prosecuting attorney, so criminal law. Uh, mm-hmm. And also during that time, I was a bit of an entrepreneur. Under- Myself, I started a magazine called Bears and Other Top Predators. He ran that for two years, but it was back in uh, twenty it was two thousand actually at the tail end of the first internet bubble mm-hmm. that I uh, got interested in what you would call startup law. You know, uh, entrepreneurial working with entrepreneurs, and uh, I joined what was then Preston Gates and Ellis here in Seattle, okay, uh, because they they had a practice in that area. I did that 10 years. Preston Gates got larger and more successful, merged with some other firms, became K&L Gates Mm -hmm. uh, before I left. But uh, leaving gave me a chance to actually lower my rate quite a bit, work quite a few hours and focus solely on startup, uh, you know, more cost.
0: So was that, uh, was leaving big law somewhere getting back into your early 2000 roots of uh, being an entrepreneur yourself? Well, K&L Gates gave me the training that I needed
1: you know, I couldn't have in 2000 coming off. So I was, you know, as a securities lawyer for on Wall Street, then I'm a criminal lawyer doing everything from traffic tickets to murders for 10 years. Uh huh. And so I needed to get back and, and get trained in startup law, and so that's that's what what K&L Gates allowed me to do. But the, you know, with a large law firm, you just don't have the flexibility that you have working for yourself.
0: Uh, Absolutely. So
1: both experiences were good. I still have great friends there at K&L Gates. Uh, we work together still occasionally on matters. Um, and uh, but the last ten years has just been
0: better. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, whirlwind of uh, startup activity here in the Seattle area. So let's get right to it. Um, you know, Let's say someone is um, out to solve the problem, has validated that the problem is real and the opportunity could be real as well. When do they need to start thinking about creating a formal business framework around it, such as say, creating an entity and so forth?
1: Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, I get a lot. And maybe not as early as one might think. So in my view, because I see a a lot of startups fail. I also see a lot of startups just get inundated with legal costs. Mm -hmm. So the question is, when when do you formalize the relationship? So I actually have an article on this uh, at startuplawtalk.com, which we can talk about later. But Mm -hmm. basically, if one of three situations, you have clients You have employees, you have revenues. I said clients, but you have revenues, uh, employees, Mm -hmm. or you're accepting finance. Okay. Before any of those three things happen, you need to be an entity. So uh, before that happens, it doesn't mean you can ignore every aspect of the law, right? You've Mm -hmm. got some people that are working with you generally. uh, And I call this the startup phase or the exploration phase is what I call it Sure. in my article. Mm -hmm. But- um, Every entrepreneur goes through this. And if you're not careful, especially with modern startups, right? There's always an element of intellectual property. Sure. And so you need to have the assignment of that intellectual property very clear. Mm.
0: So so the assignment happens, uh, needs to happen to an entity rather than to oneself, right?
1: Not necessarily, but it needs to happen. It needs to be assigned somewhere. Someone needs to own it and it needs to be clear. So does your... F- does your co-founder own it maybe that's not a co-founder yet maybe it's just a good friend <laughs>
0: <laughs> right
1: and you think it's just a good friend and the friend thinks he's a co-founder so and i even actually attached this to my article i i i recommend if if you don't want to shell out a couple thousand bucks mm-hmm. for startup legal f- yeah because you just don't know if it's going to go yet you don't know if your idea has legs yet sure and the minimum you need to do is a basic two page agreement between you and anybody else anybody else who's working with you on the project mm-hmm. and you know in the i don't charge for the agreement but people can go through it and they can see what the issues are but you got to figure out okay we're working on this project let's define the project yeah let's define who's going to own the project and generally that means we're going to to uh assign the ip that we're both creating we're going to assign that sure to an entity uh which we're going to create at a certain point in time yeah. So and what um, that agreement is, it's essential.
0: Yes, yes, understand. Yeah. So so when you um let's say when you identify a co-founder, is that also a time uh to put something in writing or and and have a like a legal framework around it or is that is that too early or you know is is a handshake agreement uh good enough when you're just like a few people like a two people uh in a startup
1: it needs to be in writing it needs to be a legally binding agreement mm-hmm. you don't necessarily it's always better to hire attorneys but You have to do what I call legal triage. Okay. Yes. It just might not be worth it to you to spend $2,000 or $1,000, whatever the attorney has a startup package for, you know, uh, to get you started. Might Mm -hmm. not be worth it yet, but you still need to have an agreement. So you and I can have an agreement. So, yeah, let's, you and I, we we agree, we're going to work on this project. We're going to share it 50 50. Mm -hmm. Anything I create that's related to this project, anything you create that's related to this project is going to be. Equally shared. We're going to assign it to an entity which we're going to form. And if you enter into an agreement like that, what you have, legally speaking, and if you sign it and agree to it, yeah, you have. It's called. Um, it's an unregistered partnership.
0: Sure, sure. So
1: that's a partnership agreement. And then an attorney. If you've done that, an attorney, when you're ready, when you yeah. when you see that it does have legs, an attorney can take that and say, all right, we're gonna we're gonna modify that agreement. We're gonna change it into an LLC agreement. Or we're gonna change it into a shareholder agreement. We're going to assign all that IP. We're going mm-hmm. to clean it all up, mm-hmm. but we know that no one's going to run away and say, "I, you know, I own half this company, or I own all this company." Yeah, uh, you don't own it. And and you before you get started, you can argue about or agree on what's your percentage. You might have to alter down the road. Absolutely, but at least you've got
0: some. Right, right. So so definitely some uh, some steps. Uh, you don't have to have like a, a, a bulletproof uh, you know legal agreement in place, but you know thinking about it. Putting something in writing, uh, and uh, so, so that for the eventual possibility that this gets successful, and you guys have to like you know uh, make a, a a legal framework around it, more formal legal framework around it, it's important to think about these things early on, right?
1: Yeah, and so not every attorney is going to tell you exactly. The, I mean, they might not agree with. This approach, this is the approach I've taken with my startup, the startup people I talked to,
0: Uh Uh,
1: and it seems to work. Uh, You don't have to get very far before you usually have one of those three things I talked about, employees, uh, revenues, or financing, investors.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And then then it's time to uh, get an attorney. And, uh, you know, especially if you got investors coming, you know, it's worth Mm -hmm. uh, either investing some in attorney or get an attorney that will agree to invest some of his time. Or sure. Time sure. To, yeah. I'll uh,
0: help you with some doc. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a, that's a good uh, mental model to, uh, uh, to think about. So in addition to, um, what we just talked about, uh, Carter, what are some of the, um, you know, other critical things that, uh, you know, founders must do early on? Uh, you, you, uh, cited a few things. Um, you know, people generally or they worry about cost. Um, they're not ready to think about so many things. Uh, you know, it is, it's outside their comfort zone. If you're a, you know, a tech, a tech you know, uh, uh, if you're just starting out. So um, anything's critical that founders must really address early on before it gets uh, into a problem?
1: Well, there's all, uh, of course. Lots of things, but let's start with the big ones. The big ones we've already talked about is who's going to own, who's going to own the property that we create. It could be intellectual property. Sometimes it could be physical property. Usually it's going to be intellectual property. Uh, how are we going to share it? Okay. So mm-hmm. let's go to the next stage. Let's go to the stage where you're starting to incorporate. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to think about what this company's worth to an investor and how do we calculate that and estimate that so we can go out and propose something to an investor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Before you do that, you have to decide who your team is and how much of the company we need to allocate to the team. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I recommend this for every team that's more than one person. Mm-hmm. They should have a vesting schedule yes. because, uh, for the obvious reasons, but it just doesn't make sense.
0: So tell us what a vesting schedule is. Um, you know, there's point. probably uh, different uh, levels of uh, uh, startup founders are listening to this podcast. So um, tell us what a vesting schedule is. Right. So
1: everybody's heard of stock option. And uh, I think most people are familiar with the idea that you get a stock option from like a big company. Let's say I work at Google or something. I might get some stock options. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if Google gives their employees stock options, but uh, most tech companies do. Right. And, and usually they'll give you a chunk of stock options and you have to earn those... By working for the company over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, a pretty typical schedule is four years, but it's not the only thing. Now, with startup companies in particular, you really need vesting because uh, here's the situation you, two guys, two gals, might start a company and they work really hard at it for two years. Sure. And they think they're about half done. So they maybe have vested it with the stock, but one of them uh, gets a better job offer. They just get an exciting job offer and they lose interest in the company uh, mm-hmm. and they leave. Mm-hmm. Should they own half the company? And, and so should as that person leaves and the person who stays now has 50% of the company without best, uh, they work for another four years and have a big exit. Yeah, And they work for entrepreneur's wages, not big company wages. And should they be sharing that company 50-50 with the person who only worked two years?
0: Yeah, good question. Yeah, good so the, question. And yeah. and so, do you see this often? Do you see this uh, uh, being one of the key uh, problems in uh, startup equity division?
1: Well, it's always an issue. Uh, so there, and so I this, we see the problem very frequently, okay. where it, either there wasn't vesting or there wasn't good planning on the vest. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so. <clears throat> In general, the vesting should go uh, at least four years because startups always take longer than you.
0: Do. Absolutely, absolutely. So in this just, this enables you know, anybody who uh, puts in their time, but needs to leave for a, a different opportunity. You know, they don't leave with a substantial amount of the company uh, for the time that they are not working for the company anymore. Right? It, it makes it fair, and also uh, um, you know, it also shows favorably towards investors.
1: Oh, absolutely. And some if you don't have vesting, if you don't have vesting. Uh, and you've run the company for a year or two, mm-hmm. you've got a product, you've got an app or something, uh, investors are excited about it. If you don't have vesting as a founder, they're going to impose vesting. There'll be buyback restrictions, but they'll impose it on you. Uh, so yeah, as an entrepreneur, you can sometimes do better. So a, a, a new... A set of investors might come in and they see, well, you only have two years left on your stock before it's completely vested. They prefer to add four more years, Mm -hmm. but since it's kind of already fixed, they'll leave it in place. So, you know, you should just always start off with vesting. Uh, It's not, as you start off, it's not going to be stock options. You're going to have vesting on the actual stock that you take. Okay. You're going to take something called restricted stock, but it's still going to have vesting, in which simplifies the matter. You basically lose those shares or they'll be purchased at a low price. when you Absolutely.
0: Okay. Okay. So what are some of the topics that uh, or areas uh, you, you talk about vesting? Is there any other topic or area that founders, you know, need to really familiarize themselves with? Um, you know, uh, of course, you know, they may have counsel. But you know if they are uh, not able to uh, spend a lot of time with counsel, what are some of the areas that they, they would need to focus on to gain familiarity uh, before they can engage counsel?
1: Or they can engage so, uh... yeah.
0: like topics that they you know it'd be better for you know both uh, sides uh, uh, to have a lot of familiarity around you know just the mechanics of things. Um, because you know if you uh, come into the situation, where you have to learn everything afresh and spend a lot of time, that may not be the ideal engagement uh, uh, scenario with counsel, right?
1: Yeah. I, I might put your question is this way. What can you learn on your own that you won't have to pay counsel to teach you?
0: That's, okay. okay.
1: That's, how, that's how I would put it. Because, you know, if if, if you got to ask counsel to explain everything, Right. Uh your it's going to be expensive. So, and maybe you have the money and that's not an issue, but uh stop. I think, you know, a founder, they need to understand their cap table and what have a cap table when you have it. Uh-huh. So, so they need to understand how cap tables work. They need to know the concept of fully diluted uh stock. Mm-hmm. They need to know the concept of pre-money value, post-money value. They need to know how vesting affects all of that. They need to know how stock options, stock warrants, and convertible stock Mm -hmm. work, the more they can educate themselves about those things, the less the counsel that helps them do a financing is going to have to spend explaining it.
0: Absolutely. So So the cap table is the living document in a startup. In simple terms, uh, uh, Carter, uh, what is a cap table and why should it matter uh, that uh, a a startup founder needs to understand that uh, quite intimately?
1: Yeah. So here's the thing I always tell my clients, the deals always, in the numbers it's business right mm-hmm. the deal is oh he's in the numbers almost you know there's some deals you know where they're you know some guy's personality might make a really big difference but It usually boils down to numbers and the numbers in a contract of any kind almost always can be summarized in a spreadsheet. Sure. And um, the spreadsheet that controls who owns what in the company and how much they're going to get once we make a bunch of money and sell this thing. Are you getting an Amber Alert? I just got an Amber Alert.
0: Yes. Yes. I got an Amber Alert.
1: too. (laughs) (laughs) We're both getting interrupted by the Amber (laughs) Alert. Isn't
0: that weird? Yeah, it is weird. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, The spread, the cat table is the spreadsheet that tells the whole story of the investment for the founders and the investors uh, and the employees, okay? Mm -hmm. It shows who owns what in the company and your ownership rights are usually in stock, common stock, preferred stock, stock right. options, mm-hmm. sometimes warrants, right. and at a certain stage usually convertible notes which mm-hmm. convert into common stock or preferred stock. Stock options convert into common stock. Stock warrants can convert into either. So, yeah. You start with a cap. So when you're when you're when well, you're starting out a company and you've gotten past the stage where you're obviously the first issue is the product. You got to have a product to sell. Uh, when you're getting past that stage or you're going to need financing or, or you're just going to need employees or partners. That's when you got to have a cap, cap table.
0: Absolutely. And yeah,
1: the cap table shows, it shows your vesting. It mm-hmm. shows the vesting. The mm-hmm. cap table is going to show the vesting, the founders and the other employees. It's going to show the percentage. that the
0: Right. And, and this is living because it, know, it, you know, for, it can, can go from um, all the way from your first raise to the IPO. Everything is captured in this uh, cap table. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool.
1: And I think only some there's there's probably some wealthy, successful entrepreneurs that don't understand cap tables, uh, to the, you know, very well. But I very few. But okay. by, the time, by the time you've had an exit, if you don't understand your cap table forward or backwards,
0: mm-hmm. then
1: you've been lucky to have someone else carry the ball for you.
0: All right. All right. We will take a short break here, and we'll be right back. We are back with uh, Carter Macley, uh, and um, Carter uh, runs um, Macley PLLC, a um, startup-focused uh, law firm in Seattle, Washington. So, uh, Carter, we talked about the cap, t- cap table, um, and so this is the time when uh, you know uh, when when the founders are going out to investors to raise money for the company. So, when when they do that, you know, what are some of the things that typically trips them up? you know, what are some of the things that they need to have, uh, uh, how to approach in, you know, fundraising for their startup? Uh, There are so many uh, issues to know about, to deal with investors. Um, What would you tell them, uh, you know, in terms of how to approach this whole uh, fundraising process for a founder? Uh
1: So when you're approaching it, it can get, there's a lot of terminology and it can get seem quite complicated, but the essence of what's going on is very simple. You've got something that's worth, you've got a company that's worth something and you own it with your part, you and your co-founders, you own the whole thing. You need investors, you need capital, you got to give them a piece. How big a piece are you going to give them? And so the question you have to ask yourself before you Mm -hmm. start out, is like, how much money do I need to take myself to the next level, take the company to the next level? Mm -hmm. And- how little can I get away with giving to the investors and still convince them to give me the money that I need? So I want. To, what's the smallest percentage that they'll that these investors would be willing to take for the one million dollars that I need, say, or the five million dollars that I need? Okay.
0: Right. Right.
1: So that's what's going on, and sometimes we get lost in all the terminology uh, sure. and and the and the complexity of actually the business deals. So. But on that point, I wanted to say one thing that's really important. The pie's only 100%. Mm-hmm. Every time you do a fundraising, if, say you're a 50% owner and you have another partner who's a 50%. Owner. Right. Every time you do a fundraising, you're going to be diluted. Yes. Diluted right. just means that if you sell 10% of the company, your 50% now just went to 45 Correct. And it's going to keep going like that forever uh, if you keep taking investment right. So. Uh, there's always dilution. A savvy entrepreneur is going to plan ahead mm-hmm. as to how much dilution. But here's the thing. There's always timing issues. But in general, you want to be raising just enough money because it, the more you raise, the, the bigger p- piece of the company you have to give away, Absolutely. right?
0: Right. You, you, don't, you don't want to dilute yourself uh, too early in the process, right? Yes. Yeah. You want
1: uh, to raise just enough money uh uh-huh. Get the company to make to make to achieve some kind of milestone, right? That materially increases the value of the company.
0: Absolutely. And um and in and, and in this aspect, uh you know at at this stage is any valuation reasonable at all um you know are we are they just making some guesstimates of valuation or or there are some formal parameters and metrics and people uh, that can advise you on you know what a typical valuation not a typical valuation but the what the valuation for your company should be
1: you know um this might not be a commonly held okay mm-hmm. but it's This is my viewpoint after doing this for 20 years. Uh Um, The phrase pre-money valuation or just valuation is a shorthand way to tell me how much my percentage is going to cost me as an investor. Mm-hmm. Everyone okay. knows that valuations are uh, subjective, but what's really going on is the investor is making the calculation, all right, if we can grow this company and sell it for X dollars or go public for X dollars, mm-hmm. how much will my investment
0: be well, worth it? So that's yeah. a, that is the multiple that they are looking at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
1: it implies, so if I invest a million dollars for 10% of the company, by definition, the 90% 90 of the company is worth a million dollars. I mean, 10 million, that's a really high valuation. So that's, that might not have any, you never could sell, you might not be able to sell the company for that. But what you can do yeah. Is convince investors that if they invest a million now, they could get two mil- 200 million in five years. Right. Years, right. You know, something
0: like yeah. that. Yeah. So, on that subject, is, um, you know, what are some of the reasons that uh, fundraising fails or doesn't meet expectations? Is it typically valuation or are there more things like how much control? the uh, the founders have on the company. W- you know in, in your experience, uh, what have you seen?
1: Well fundraising can fail for a lot of us but generally if fundraising is going to occur if there's a, you know mutual well not even mutual if, if the investors perceive that there's value future value in their investment, then I would say most the most if fundraising you know doesn't happen it's because the investors don't see that value. there's all sorts of reasons that give them cold feet. Hmm. Uh, I mean, there's just lots. Of,
0: right. Right. Um, yeah. So so if if they uh you know primarily what is they don't see value uh, for their investment, the the, the the growth prospects of the company are not uh, big enough that, you know, they would make, you know, a, a true multiple uh, on the capital they invest. Uh, but once they are okay past valuation or there's some tripwires that uh, typically, you know, trip uh, founders, um, you know, do they get caught up in uh, certain aspects that that uh, should they should pay more attention to and not get caught up with?
1: I understand. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think I like can you get too hung up on the details and i say the smart founder will so there's there's a lot of form documents out there now sort of standardized way of doing things mm-hmm. and uh the investors really kind of push this to, to try and standardize things minimize legal costs and quit arguing over small details so uh if you can sort of don't try and recreate the will goes pretty standard right. instruments and documentation uh-huh uh, no, having said that founders usually care about control and, and I advise a lot of founders and try and maintain as much control as possible. Sure. Uh, but, uh, I have to say, in the last three or four years, I haven't really seen a founder blow it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I've okay. seen them having to give up more control than they wanted. Yeah. You know? But, uh, in the end I have seen founders reject investors who wanted too much control. I'd say that investor mm-hmm. blew it. You know, mm-hmm. but most seem to be you know it's pretty standard Series A, it's pretty standard investor protection okay. for It's, it's probably
0: because of you know good uh, standard documents being available and more information on the web being available as well for founders to inform themselves. Right, there, there is a lot more information now than there was, like say, twenty years ago.
1: A lot of that, and just a lot of inertia. You know, a lot of a lot of institutional, not institutional, but industry inertia. Mm. You know, everybody does it this way. Oh, you know, it's yeah. Not, Let's not be too different, right. not really market to do that way.
0: Sure, sure. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. You've had a front row seat in many startups. Uh, what distinguishes the good ones from the average yeah. ones?
1: Boy, you know, uh, well, it's always great to have like just a super idea that no one else had, but mm-hmm. the the ones that are successful, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Lex Friedman prod- podcast. I was listening to that the other day, but he was saying, well, he, and he's, he's an MIT professor and he has to hire and interview uh, PhD candidates to help him on their, you know, graduate students. But mm-hmm. he said, what's more important, working hard or working smart? Right. And I agreed with his analysis is working hard is much more important. Uh, you like, it's cool to work smart, <laughs> right. but the ones that are successful work hard. Uh, they seek advice when they, they know the limits of their own advice, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't. there's not just one formula. You know, I've got clients who are much different, and some, some of them could not even probably – work together at all on a project but okay. some are more team oriented some are more individualistic all the good ones work hard uh, uh all the good ones in my view uh use lawyers and account in an intelligent you know efficiently and right in a smart way just don't
0: uh, try to do everything by themselves right yeah mm-hmm. in, in in places where yeah uh, expertise um, is uh, expertise is sorely needed okay Okay, very cool. So um, you know, this last uh you know 10, uh, 12 years I've seen an explosion in technology, uh seen a lot of explosion, uh, and uh reimagining, you know, various things done in the traditional way. And um uh, for example, uh, there's a company called Carta, which does all the cap table uh, optimization and management online. And so with tools emerging like that, uh, what do you see as a, uh, as a lawyer? How do you see your role evolving in the future? I don't see my
1: role evol- evolving much at all. Okay, but, but Carta is a great example. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, Carta is, is just a, a really useful tool. Yeah. So is uh, uh, Adobe Acrobat and the the, uh, the facility they have to sign documents. Doctors
0: right. Sign. The, the, the e-sign, e-sign infrastructure. E-sign,
1: all that stuff just makes business so much better. That's not what you hire attorneys for. So, so I had a, a smaller client that wanted to use Carta, mm-hmm. and they only had three shareholders and six or seven employees with options. I said, well, you can do it, but you don't have any need to publish, uh, you know, your results to a bunch of investors. They didn't. They didn't even have outside investors yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one one of the few decisions I think this client did make a good decision. But you know, I said, garbage in, garbage out. So they put paid some money for carta, and it was like kind of a waste of money in my view. On the other hand, you know, you get a you get a number of investors, yeah. uh, a bunch of employees. Uh, right. uh, you know, a facility like carta, carta is just can save you so much time making mm-hmm. your record. And I just took over a, a new client who had prior counsel and they already had everything in carta uh, their attorney just had to say well you know i'm not sure but it's in carta <laughs> and, you know so and the prior firm had done a good job making sure what was in there was good cuz it's garbage in garbage out right you got it doesn't do any good if yeah so there's some like zoom and some of these legal documents services right in general if you don't understand what's in the document it has limited usefulness so in, in spite of in spite of these tools clients show up and say well
0: yeah so these tools are not a you know a, a complete replacement you still need some expertise to ensure that the data that gets into this is uh quite clean
1: yeah you know in every business you still got to have people that understand what's going on right in the mm-hmm. various parts of the business so the tools can do a lot um, they'll just make us more efficient and faster uh so i you know i uh intel well i don't know we can, we can get pretty philosophical here but i think self i agree with elon musk like the cell phones are basically the first stage to becoming android we all have <laughs> right it, it, i'm not even joking it's like we i get angst if i don't have my cell phone with me Absolutely. even when i'm hiking but <laughs> i don't i don't even I, well i use it for for you know right for lots of things i use it for photos and i use it sometimes i do business calls while I'm hiking, but I definitely find my way with it. You know, it's like,
0: yeah, so right. So, so it is, it is, you know, I mean, if you look at a a life of a startup CEO, you know, they encounter, you know, so many contracts and agreements. uh, And if they are truly successful in moving the company to, you know, later and later stages, they're probably encountering, you know, hundreds of contracts and agreements. So, you know, is there a framework uh, around how to think about contracts and agreements? You know, is it just a cost of doing business or should, you know, to, to really be, uh, okay and have, um, you know, balanced perspective should we adopt it? you know, should CEOs have a, a very intentional perspective towards contracts and agreement?
1: Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I'll just give a potent. So you got to play legal, legal triage usually. Okay. Uh, you can't hire a really expensive attorney to go over each little contract in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for example, when I worked at, uh, Ken L Gates, uh, for a while, I helped a couple of large companies prepare form agreements, which their uh, contract managers could use. And you know, the form agreements had all sorts of instructions and options that they could pick. And if they had an issue come up, they asked the attorney. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what their commercial contracts. So their contract suppliers, vendors, uh, sometimes sales contract. Okay yeah but when you're talking about an investment in the company mm-hmm. take out sell it 10 of the company or 20 percent of the company you're not going to do that without not smart it's not a good choice to do that without legal count right so uh you can play a little triage i would wreck you know it's always best to have an attorney look at every contract but mm-hmm. it might not be worth it so i would say pay attention if you don't you know make sure you understand the impact of any contract you sign uh if you're not going to have legal counsel look at it. Uh, You know, you might can get away without too much damage if you sign a supply agreement that's only 3% of your supply, right? Mm. But if you sign a license agreement with a distributor that binds you for seven years on an exclusive license, Mm -hmm. you've essentially sold the company. So ideally, you'd have a relationship with an attorney, you can say, is this, do I need you to look at this, right? Or how, and you know, most attorneys, they do not they either want to be fully responsible for it or not responsible and that's okay. how i am too. so but you got to you know if you're not going to spend those if you if it's not worth it to, mm-hmm. to spend that amount you need to make clear maybe an attorney can help you sort of figure out which which agreement it um,
0: right right so, the, you know, that the term, the, the phrase illegal the triage, I think is like, you know, super interesting because, yeah, uh, you, you don't want to be, uh, you want to prioritize uh, which ones impact you the most and, uh, you know, seek counsel there and uh, really not worry about things that are not that Im- impactful at all. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. And okay. I,
1: I, it's probably not really fair. It's probably not really fair for me as an attorney to to use that term because i'm the one who can do it the legal triage right a doctor <laughs> performs medical triage it's sort of it's sort of like asking a, a lawyer to go in and do medical triage well how can i right, right, right. do medical triage? yeah well,
0: but we were talking about you know the the mental framework to you know kind of uh, you know uh, over a period of time you know uh, uh by you know by practice and learning know, uh, you know, have a feel for what is really important, what is not.
1: Yeah. And if you have the right attorney, they can help you
0: draw that line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, getting down to the, uh, the, um, the last uh, segment of the podcast. So uh, tell us something interesting that has, that has happened. Uh, Any interesting anecdote or experience that you've had working uh, for a, a startup company as, as their counsel uh, anything that uh, would be uh, interesting for our audience?
1: Well, uh, it's always interesting to be working with a client and they call you up and they've been looking for financing and, and, and then, and they, uh, Hey, and then they and snagged some really desirable super angel. That's always interesting. Can't uh-huh. always really publicize that, but I'll tell you what, something was funny. So I was, as a criminal prosecutor, uh-huh. you know, I prosecuted various kinds of crimes. Well, they they legalized marijuana. And uh I found myself, I, I don't have a lot of marijuana clients. I have a few, they kind of tend to follow me, but I, I was interviewing a couple of guys that they wanted me to represent them on their startup company. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, thinking, if I'd been interviewing you 10 years ago, it would have been well, maybe 15 years ago, it would have been uh in uh at the police station inside an interview room and you would have been recorded. It was it's just funny how society changes where uh, yeah. you know, I just, I just did a like, preferred stock round for a cannabis company, mm-hmm. yeah. and, you know, serious, serious business people, investors in New York, uh, and something that was illegal 10 years ago. So it's Right. Pretty, yeah,
0: thought, right. Oh, and that's amazing. The pace of thought, change. That was kind of interesting. Right. The pace of change in society is just, um, uh, you know, mind boggling, right?
1: It is. It's 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 really changing fast. I'll tell you, the other big changes. So I started, like I said, I was on Wall Street. It was in the era of FedEx and fax. OK, we did have mm-hmm. fax machines, mm-hmm. but we were always trying to make deadlines. And I was in criminal law. Totally. Then I get back right at the start. You know, 2000, you know, email was pretty much established, completely changed the way business is done. So now we could email everything. There weren't really any deadlines. You could work all night, email it in the middle of the night, no problem.
0: Right, right. So, uh, Absolutely. I, I mean, time has been sped up with these, uh, with all these tools. So um, I know th- I follow you uh, on various uh, uh, social media platforms, and uh, you do a lot of uh, stuff outdoors. You hike a lot. You're in nature a lot. How has that helped you with your day-to-day work?
1: Uh, well, it gives me a lot of sanity. It also time, sometimes gives me contacts. I run into people that uh, have the same interests, but uh, you know, everybody's got to have uh, an outlet. And uh, living in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, we have beautiful places to hike and visit. Being the outdoors, uh, three hundred sixty degrees of the compass, every direction, we got pretty really cool things to go see. Mm-hmm. So, so does, most- do those
0: do those hikes and um, and long um, uh, treks? Uh, do they help uh, with any complex uh, legal issues? Do you think over over that when you are? out in the woods. I actually,
1: you know, I think most people
0: do, they when they're uh if they have time to uh just
1: sort of meditate or muse, which mm-hmm. you do when you're hiking. Um uh, if they like their job, which I do, mm-hmm. they they often solve problems while they're doing that. Right.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I've I've heard often that, you know, a long walk Um, you know, can give you so many ideas and uh, uh, potential solutions to problems that uh, uh, you're uh, working on your regular uh, job, right? Yeah. Um, Excellent. So uh, who is your inspiration, Carter? Uh, You know, you've um, uh, obviously, you know, nature is one of your inspirations, uh, but in terms of people, any specific person that uh, you want to uh, cite as your inspiration?
1: You know, uh, I got into startup law because I like entrepreneur mm-hmm. and uh i got lots of clients that are very inspiring uh, and i won't name names but okay there's so there a lot of you know and I, you know there's there's a handful that are my favorite that my current clients you know and mm-hmm. they work so hard they have such interesting ideas uh, and that's why i like this job is uh that i get to talk with them they share their ideas with me, uh, share their product ideas, they share their struggles and their mm-hmm. fights, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're very inspiring to me. Uh, and
0: and you, I mean, they become your best friends, right? In in a, in a way?
1: I hope so. Mm. You know, I'm not going to presume too much. Okay. <laughs> but I consider them friends and I hope they consider me their friend because I, I definitely am loyal to them, but I do send them a bill every month.
0: So. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's cool. Okay. So it's uh, 2021 already. We are in the early parts of it. Um, Do you want to uh, give us any prediction? You know, it could be anything um, for for this year.
1: I haven't really thought about that. Uh, You know, 2020 was uh, difficult because of COVID. It was difficult politically. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's going to be a stable year. And stability is usually good. Okay. Okay. I mean, we got a we got a few more months to pull out of COVID. We got to you know get the vaccine around, but I think I think there's going to be you know it's hard to see what happens politically, but it looks like it's going to be probably kind of a stalemate, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think
1: um, I think it's going to be a good year for entrepreneurship.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm sure like you know people who started companies in 2020 were probably the ones that um, you know uh, didn't mind. The disruption, but went ahead and and, and you know plowed through the uh, the disruption anyway. So uh, they're probably uh, maturing into early seed stage companies, and um, the stability could help them propel forward.
1: Yeah, I hope so. And uh, we really, you know, we really want to get the angel groups back to meeting in person. You know, <laughs> yes, I, uh, that's definitely put a damper on things. Uh, has- but
0: unbelievably, uh Carter, um, you know, I'm here. I mean, I, I, I'm a member of the Alliance of Angels, and it seems like there is the the uh, the deal activity and investment level has actually not slowed down this year. Because in, in twenty twenty
1: the demand's still there. So yeah. which is cool. Yes. So- Yes but I mean I'm asking you do you feel like you're able to do the due diligence that you would have done otherwise
0: I mean yes I mean the the uh natural interactions are missing uh right uh, but we do get on video calls uh, quite a bit um and uh, but yeah you're right I mean I can't go and you know check somebody's office and see you know how they're set up and you know the people they're working with yeah those all become problematic but um but I have not seen a a slowdown in investment activity from the groups that I participate in.
1: That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, that's at least good. I, I think it's because, you know, with uh, with uh, ultra low interest rates uh, and uh, people are trying to figure out, you know, where is the best place for me to park my, you know, put my money, not really park, invest my money. And I think angel investments might, people are realizing that angel investing, you know, might be a good uh, place to start in 2020. 2021. Absolutely. Uh, following into 2021. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. so very nice. Uh, on that note, uh, Carter, it's been a delight to have you on this uh, podcast. Hope we can uh, keep talking more this year and uh, have you back again. Well,
1: thanks for having me. It's been
0: a pleasure. Thank you again. You bet. Thank you very much for tuning in. You can send us feedback at feedback at carabinermedia.com. It is Startup feedback at carabiner, C-A-R-A-B-I-N-E-R, media.com. See you next time.